One summer day in Illinois, not long after we moved into our house there, we were with Riley and some neighbors at the park that was in the middle of our neighborhood, and Riley came up to me thirsty. And I realized for the first time that there weren't any water fountains in the park. Come to think of it, I hadn't seen a fountain or a bathroom in any park. And there weren't any sprinklers either. What was this place? I mentioned how that felt weird to my neighbor, a local, who reminded me of two things. One, pipes would freeze in the winter. Cue my duh moment there. Might as well wear a sign. I'm from California and have never seen snow fall from the sky before. Two, she reminded me that there is always plenty of water. Winter snow melts. Summer storms come regularly with rain. They're provided for, really. Illinois is basically antithetical to the Bible. Oh, wow. Oops. Sorry. Uh, Freudian slip. The climate of Illinois is basically antithetical to the climate of the ancient Near East, the areas that form Israel, Palestine, Jordan, etc. today. The climate of the Bible is, well, a lot like here in Southern California. Coincidentally. The area is a desert, dry, with very hot, long summers. This creates a total dependence on irrigation if crops will grow. Since we just came out of a deep, prolonged drought, it's not hard for Southern Californians to connect with this reality from the world of Jeremiah. Without water, nothing grows. We've seen that firsthand. What we don't connect with is this. Without water, nothing grows, and we starve, our fertility plummets, our land grows weak, and we come under threat. But all of that was very important to the world then. Hold on to that for a minute for me. Idolatry is a major theme in the book of Jeremiah, so it's important to understand what that meant and looked like. Sometimes we think of idolatry as a philosophical choice. One carefully considers which God seems true and pursues that God intentionally. That is one version for some, but that is not how this played out here. The people were not asking, where is truth? This was more like superstition. I know those are just rocks and branches, but what if they're not? Maybe Yahweh isn't one and only. And would it really hurt to have a backup plan? But the backup plan reveals a choice to put their trust in the gods of the nations. Idolatry is revealed not by what we say we believe, but by where we put our trust. For them, it was, who do you trust for your political life, for crops, for fertility? For us, it might be, who do you trust for your political life? That hasn't changed. Your income, your family's happiness. And Israel has the true God, ready and able to provide all they need. But instead, they turn to idols who are utterly unable to do, well, anything. But of course, there's enough mythology around the gods of the nations to make it seem like they are real, powerful, more powerful. The true and trustworthy God has invited them into this exclusive covenant relationship. And idols, as Christopher Wright notes, never fail to fail us. But rather than respond to God in kind, being the people of the promise who are devoted to only God, Israel has decided to try out an approach of Yahweh and 
which meant performing rituals and sacrifices to idols who promised rain, offspring, protection. And Jeremiah responds to them with a word from God saying, in short, you people are so disloyal. Jeremiah 2, 10 to 11 says it this way, cross to the coasts of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? By the way, this is written in Hebrew in such a way where the inferred answer is, of course not. That never happens. But my people have changed their glory for something that does not profit. Yahweh is your God. And look at the other nations even. Their gods are fake and worthless. But the people are loyal to them. You, Israel, have the true God. And you're disloyal. You don't put your trust in God. God and is not the same thing. What ands have we been adding on to God? Now remember that first thought about water as we opened up together and knowing how the people have turned to idolatry. Listen to how this all comes together when God's word comes through Jeremiah in chapter 2, verse 13. God says, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Christopher Wright elaborates on this in this way. Imagine a farmer fortunate enough to have a perennial spring of water on their land. Such good fortune was extremely rare in a land almost entirely dependent on rainfall. Never again would they need to worry about irrigation for their crops. The spring provides for all their life's needs, directly or indirectly, harvest after harvest. Can you even imagine someone stupid enough to willingly abandon such a priceless asset? What would be the alternative? Well, imagine the same farmer hacking away for years in the backbreaking work of carving out a big underground tank in the solid rock beneath the soil. But after all the sweat and effort, the rock is found to be cracked and the water drains away. All the effort was in vain. All you hoped for has dribbled away. The whole thing was a pointless, needless waste. Jeremiah's point. And to be fair, what I'm about to say came from multiple commentators in nearly this exact language. Jeremiah's point. Putting your trust in anything other than God is stupid and it's useless. Prophets do, after all, have a bit of an edge to them. But it's worth asking, how do we do this too? Do we live with a God and system? Putting our trust also in our careers or investments, our family life, our freedoms. Perhaps a clue to the answer lies when we ask a slightly different question. Who makes life worth living? Israel's idolatry revealed not only that they didn't really trust God to protect and provide for them, 
but also that they weren't really sure that God's version of the good life was worth it, was the best version possible. What if Baal's good life is better? Who or what makes life worth living? I did a little rapid fire brainstorm on this question, and here were five nominations that came for our culture, but there's more, of course. Target. Instagram assures me that Target makes life worth living. Also, Rosé. Oh, in America, being white, having consumer power, the better the marketing team, the less likely we actually even are to notice how any of these things lure us into a God and life. It's no accident that Jesus comes on the scene with statements then like this. Whoever drinks of the water that I give them shall never thirst, but the water I will give them will become in them a well of water springing up to eternal life. John 4, 41. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. John 6, 35. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, from their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John 7, 37 to 38. God isn't asking Israel or us for exclusivity just to be controlling or to feed God's ego. Idolatry isn't a problem for God because God is some sort of authoritarian, fragile, easily offended monarch. Idolatry is a problem because it reveals that we don't trust God to provide the good life for us or that we don't trust the version of the good life that God would lead us into to really be what we'd want. Ben Patterson, who was campus pastor at Westmont when I was there as a student, he would often say something like this. Our relationship with God is like a three-legged stool built on understanding God's power. Can God do what is best? God's love. Does he want to? Does God really want what's best for me? And God's wisdom. Does God know? Does God really actually know what's best. While God's power and love and wisdom are infinite and perfect, Ben would remind us, the moment we doubt one of them, the stool topples. And then he would often say, I think that disappointment with God usually comes from failure to really trust one of these three things. Because one thing God does not seem to do is continue to protect and provide for Israel while they continue in distrustful idolatry. Instead, God lets them be idolatrous. And that brings its own natural consequences, which we'll see as we continue on in the book. And God doesn't intervene to prevent them. We're going to unpack this point more, actually, on the Backdrop episode of the podcast, because it can be difficult for us. We're in a consumeristic world where people are always competing for us. They want our attention and our money and our loyalty. And God wants us But God doesn't seem to compete for us, at least not like this, which puts it back to us and what we might choose when it comes to our trust. Hear God's word through Jeremiah in chapter 213 one more time. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
Our God is a fountain of living water, offering all we need, even all we want. But we have some challenging questions to reflect on as well. Where do we put our trust? Really? Might it be that some doubt about God's power, love, or wisdom make the invitation to trust other things more alluring? When we look at our lives, who or what makes them worth living? Or maybe we just know it's time to be honest and say to God, yeah, I've had ands and they held no water and I'm thirsty. If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, from their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Amen.